Welcome to Reread Allegedly, where we allegedly read books and then we talk about them. Usually, none of us have anything good to say, and if we do, the other people <laughs> shut them up real fast. <laughs> uh, this week, as always, I'm here, I'm Squid, I'm also known as Catherine, but no one calls me that. I'm joined by Celeste. Hello. And our token male, John. I've got some hot takes for today's episode. Oh, I know you do. How fitting, because we're reading Fahrenheit 451, which is a hot temperature. <laughs> but before we get to that... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, that's the extent of my humor. Um, I got nothing else. Jokes? Nothing better than that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before jokes. we get to that, instead of alleged reads today, we're going to do another random reads where we... Throw some numbers out there and then go find them on our bookshelf and talk about whatever it is, whether or not we've read it. Chances are good for me. I haven't. <laughs> you think I read? <laughs> Considering I'm, I'm legitimately looking at a bookcase full of books that are on my TB read list. Yeah, same. Um, no one can see us while we record, but I am sitting in front of my bookcases. I have read none of the ones that you can see. <laughs> That's none of them. Uh, they're, 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 they're. They're just there to make Squid look good. Yeah, they're really aesthetic for this audio medium that we operate <laughs> <It's> under. <laughs> okay, so as a reminder for how Random Reads works, our first number will determine the corner of the bookshelf where we'll be starting. So one is top left, two is top right, three is bottom right, four is bottom left. So we're going in clockwise. Yes, and then the next number will be the shelf. Um, I had someone pick one through five. I think one of you said you only had four shelves before. I has five. But you can just loop back around. So One of my bookcases only has four, but this new one has five. Um, I don't remember if we said last time if we start at the top or the bottom. So should we start at the top or the bottom? I start at the top. Okay, so. Because I'm an American. <laughs> we I don't see how fast we can race to the bottom. <laughs> have a preference? What? Okay, well, we'll start at the top. So our next number will be the shelf down from the top. So one would be the first shelf, two would be the second shelf, okay. so on. And then the next number would be the number in from the outside. And that is the book you will discuss. If it's a bad one, pick something else. I don't know. I'm not there to monitor what you pick. <laughs> All right. Are we ready? Yes. Yes, ma'am. So our wonderfully crowdsourced number from the people in the next room of my house was three. Mm -hmm. So the bottom right. Yes, mm -hmm. bottom right. Five, so the fifth shelf from the top, and the 19th book in. Kay. Everyone, go! All right, we're all back. We all got our books. I do. Who wants to go first? John wants to go first. I'll go first. It's fine. Uh, the book that you selected for me was uh, Percy Jackson, the Olympians, book four, The Battle of the labyrinth by didn't, rick reardon didn't you get one of those last time i did or so you did i was like one of these came up before <laughs> yeah and yes i have indeed read it once in that is it i have one of you i have all five of the books what's that one of you have it as a favorite don't you am i crazy i enjoy them very much um I it's enjoy most mythology uh I, I have all the Percy Jackson books, or at least the first five, um, in hardcover. Did cover. you see they're uh, making a new show? Yes, I actually watched the preview, and it looks like they're actually going to do it right. <laughs> they can't do it any worse than the movies. Well, and apparently, Mr. Ryden? Reardon. Reardon, however you say his name, 
is an intricate part of it. So if they change something, they change it with his blessing. The yeah. movie, they were like, hey, we're going to change this. And he's like, hey, I'd rather you not. And like, they went, I can rewrite Ha-ha. the script to make it better. And they're like, oh, you've already signed your rights away. Mm. Welcome to Disney. We love that. Ironically, Disney's the one doing the new show. Yeah, I don't <laughs> trust. I don't. I am They've I don't done some it. things. They've done some things better oh, recently. Hopeful. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when they. It's like when they tried to turn the Hannibal series into a TV show. No, thank you. Hannibal you ruin was... everything. Hannibal was okay. Did you read the books though? No. No. I like the movies. I like the first movie. I don't Sounds think I watched any of the ones. Yeah. What do you consider the first movie? Let me ask you that. Sounds of the Lambs. Mm. I think it's the only one I've seen. No, it's not the first movie, but that's cool. <laughs> the way that my brain so, was about to say Along Comes a Spider, and <laughs> I realized that was an entirely different. <laughs> that's the first one, right? Hannibal's in there somewhere. I mean, I'm not. sure he is, but. What's the so second I... one of that one? Hold on. Now that I'm on uh, the tangent, Along Comes a Spider. Or is that the second one? It's uh, something about kisses. Kiss the girls. And Kiss the girl. Maybe. Are there three? Judd in it. Didn't know what it was happening. I get to kiss the girls in theaters. I don't think I saw the first one of that, but I've seen a long game of spiders. <laughs> I'm just killing it all around. Okay, go ahead, Celeste. Okay, so I pulled, and it's actually not my book. It's Dallas's book, but it's the Harmony of the Gospels, and it, according to Google, and this is why I needed John to go first, so I had time to Google what this was. Um, the Harmony of the Gospels offers a comparative study chart for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's gospel accounts categorized by subject. The study resource allows quick side-by-side viewing of what each apostle recorded in each of the four Gospels. So I haven't read this because it is a study guide, um, and I've not done a deep dive into the Gospels. Uh, it seems yet. like a not- sizable book. It's not bad. I feel like my outline. As far as like commentaries go, it's very tiny, but yeah, like we have some. some Let's see. Just compared to my book, (laughs) it's like oh, it's tiny. It has maps. Oh, we like maps. It has about four hundred pages in it. I bet John's book also has maps. (laughs) Uh, No, there's no maps in Percy Jackson. No. No. No, it's all words. So, it's not a good fantasy it. book. It doesn't have a map in the front. True. To be fair, it's not really fantasy. It's mythology. And I, I, I believe that there's a difference. It's not high fantasy, but it's fantasy. It falls under mm. the fantasy genre. Anything involving a mythos like that, I think, is fantasy. So, <laughs> And they don't... Well, the thing about it is they don't really visit, like, a fake world either for it to, to require a map. Like a lot of it happens in like New York and the US. So yeah, that's oh. true. Especially this is me. Particular. Like I've never read it. All I know is what, like, <laughs> Camp oh. Camp Olympus or something. Camp Half Blood. Camp Half Blood. Yeah, I was close. <laughs> and that's in New York State. <laughs> yeah, it's it's in the the woods of New York State. John will leave this podcast right now when I say the only thing I've done is actually seen the movies. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. No, I can't. I can't leave the podcast because I actually enjoy the first movie. I, I I watch it with my mind separated from the book series. I didn't know there was I a second the movie. So, movie. Sea is. of Monsters. It's it's uh, dumb. I'm I'm really killing it on movie series today. <laughs> 
the best part of the Sea of Monsters Waking movie up. is Vultures in your Um is that they had um, Nathan Fillion play a character, and he, for some reason, was giving them a. They needed something, and it was a from a show that had been canceled. And he goes, oh, it was such a good show. Canceled within its first season. Which oh, rip. <laughs> was a nod to... I just started rewatching that. Firefly. See, everybody knows, like, knows Nathan Fillion from Firefly. Me, he will always be Cactoid Jim. I don't know what that is. Um, it... <sighs> It's the podcast geek in me coming out. There was a podcast called The Amazing Adventure Hour, mm-hmm. uh, which is where they had it, 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 things were set up like an old timey radio show. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one, one of them was Sparks, Nevada, Marshall on Mars. And Nathan Fillion had a reoccurring character called Cactoid Jim. I think Firefly was my first introduction. I was going to say something else in regards to that, too, now, and I forget. Nope. I got nothing. Oh, I. this is, again, unrelated, but it's another movie. Is the second movie where they, like, go to a nightclub and there's, like, a flower? Is that nope, it? No, that's the first movie. Okay, that's yeah, then the, I've only seen the first. <laughs> that's the lair of the Lotus Eaters. Yeah. Slither? What's that? Nope. Slither. I might have seen Slither. I, I, I own Slither. I thought it was a TV show, but I might just be crazy. Slither? No, that's no, a movie. No, 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 I mean, he's been in a lot of things. He was in a series of unfortunate events. Also a good book series. I've been tempted to dive into that series, but after watching the Jim Carrey movie, I'm just like, eh. no, 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 no. That movie, no. It's not bad. It's just not true to the book. The Netflix series uh, is much better. I've thought about watching that too, but again, after watching the Jim Carrey movie, I'm just kind of like the TV show eh. wasn't bad. No, Patrick Harris did well. Yes, that and I can't stand child actors for the most part. I can't stand children, so we all have our things. So, moving on. <laughs> moving on. Yes, I got art for God's sake, which is the smallest book on my bookshelf. It is a meager. 58 pages. It's honestly just an essay bound in book form. It's by Philip Graham Riken, who is the president of Wheaton College in Illinois, which is the town where I work. So everyone can come visit me. <laughs> Will Wheaton College? Not Will Wheaton. Unfortunately not. But anyway, Art for God's Sake is a book that I got after I read Art in the Bible by Francis Schaeffer. Because this is kind of his follow-up, more in a modern-day setting. It's called A Call to Recover the Arts. He basically just talks about what does God say about the arts? Can you be a Christian and an artist? And how do the arts impact your church? And it's a nice little read. Very tiny. I suggest it. I highly suggest instead of this one, you actually read Art in the Bible by Francis Schaeffer first. And then you can read this one if you want. Francis Schaeffer will kick you in the butt. Pretty much any time he writes, actually. (laughs) He does not pull punches. I think that Art in the Bible is the only thing I've read by him. It's dense. Francis Schaeffer is a heady man with strong opinions, which is what most of the white theologians are. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, there's theologians. Yeah, because they're theologians. So he, yeah, 
He has some good opinions, but they're also just hard to get through sometimes. Understandable. Unless you're into that. And then power to you. All right, great. Those are really nice random reads. Which is good, because I didn't have an alleged read for this week. So. Hey. I, I do. I constantly have an alleged read. Yeah, Always. but as we established at the beginning, I don't read. So. <laughs> <laughs> hence the, the hence the name of the. Uh, if I had to talk and I about in the same brainwave. If I had to talk about what I'm allegedly reading, it would be so you want to be an interpreter, ethics, and interpreting. You're in school, so you get a slot. Yeah, I could talk about ethics all day if you guys want that, but it'd be a real boring podcast. Well, you know there there are definitely some ethics discussed in the book that we read. There are. Real quick, though, I want to I want to throw out my alleged read anyway because I think people should read it. Uh, That's not part of this show now, John. It is now because I say so. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm reading The Devil and Silver by Victor Laval. Go read it. It's an interesting take on mental health in uh, some Lovecraft light style fiction. Considering that a lot of Lovecraftian fiction, they do indeed need some mental health help. That's good. It takes place inside a, uh, a mental unit in a hospital. That could be sketchy. Like One Flew Over the Cougar's Nest, because I've seen that movie too. <laughs> there, there's a lot of that in there. I also am pretty sure that was a book first, too, that I've only seen the movie of, but... We all know how Squid did her book reports in high school. <laughs> I was homeschooled. You think I had book reports? <laughs> <laughs> I keep forgetting. I'm the only one who did public school here. I did nothing but book reports for yeah, a year. Yeah, I had year. book reports. <laughs> we legitimately, like, I got punished with book reports. But <laughs> Oh, I did not. See, my mom was really good. Again, this is just going to be a tangent that doesn't need to stay here, but now I'm going to talk okay. about it. Uh, my mother... And knew that I was very bad at reading as a child and mm. didn't want to make me hate reading. That's respectful. So she was like, I'm not going to make you read. I'm just going to make reading seem nice and there when you want it. So if I started like reading a book and I was like, this is horrible and I hate it, she'd be like, then don't read it. Go read something else. <laughs> and now we understand why I've never read The Scarlet Letter because it's a trash book that no one should God. ever read. Oh, no. <laughs> I hate that book. I was forced to read The Scarlet Letter for co-op. And I legitimately, I think I may have told this story before, but I legitimately ended up in an argument with the literature teacher. She was coming at it as a, this is a wonderful thing. Like, this is a wonderful book. The Scarlet Letter? Yeah. She Who has it. ever read Scar? Like, I don't even mind that the theme's adultery. It's just that it was written like an actual trash book. It was written Ugh. in old English. Yeah. And you can't read it because no one talks like that. I've was, never read it, so I can't speak on the topic. I, you know, if I hated us more, I'd pick it for this podcast just so I could complain about it, but no, I don't want to read it. So I would refuse. Yeah. I would just use my old complaints and things that i had with that teacher scarlet letter was just like one of the first books that i read that i was like just because a book is a classic doesn't mean it's a good book and it doesn't mean we should read it (laughs) um and then the second book that made me think that was the catcher in the rye which i'll also never finish because holden caulfield is the worst character i've ever read and i hate him I've never tried that one. It never has pulled my interest, and I wasn't required to. That that book is such a divisive book amongst the people that I've talked to about it that... No. 
It's it's not even like, oh, this has facilitated good conversation. Like, this is just not a good book. Maybe if you're a 14-year-old boy, you'll like it. And you relate to the selfish dummy that is Holden Caulfield. I don't know. But not me. Go to bed. Take a nap. I don't know. <laughs> Have a Snickers. You're not you when you're hungry. Anyway, now that we've had our entire conversation about classic literature, let's talk about a classic book. And we could have talked about this all after I said that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's get into our book of the month. Okay, so today we're going to be reading... No, today we're not reading. Today we're going to be discussing Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. Most of you have probably heard of this book, but if you haven't, the description is... Guy Montag is a fireman. His job is to destroy the most illegal of commodities, the printed book, along with the houses in which they are hidden. Montag never questions the destruction and ruin his actions produce, returning each day to his bland life and wife, Mildred, who spends all day with her television family. But when he meets an eccentric young neighbor, Clarice, who introduces him to a past where people didn't live in fear and to a present where one sees the world through the lens of ideas, no... Through the ideas and books, instead of a mindless chatter of television, Montag begins to question everything he's ever known. That's Fahrenheit 451 in a nutshell. And I find that that description pretty much sums up most of what happens in this book. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Uh, I, w I want to start this conversation off by saying Mildred is a waste of human flesh. She's... I disagree with the statement, but... She is a horrible person. She would um, have to be human flesh to do that, and she's a fictitious character. She's also a product I'm just of her saying, environment, as, so... As a concept. As a concept, is, wouldn't want to know her. No, if I did no, know her, would want to help educate her. <laughs> if I did know her, she would be someone I would run the other way from. That's like, fair. I'd be like, good love morning, hello, I've got <laughs> To be fair, if she was a real person, she'd never leave her home. So, That's also fair. It'd be fine. Like, you wouldn't have to interact with her. Good old Millie. Shoot. I've mm. I've met people like like her though that are willfully ignorant. Yeah, that's really that's really what was happening. She was being willfully ignorant. Yes, I don't. I didn't mind Millie. I like. I know John. You hated her. <laughs> you almost left the book because of her. I did leave the book because of her. You guys made me come back to it because we were doing an episode on this. I know, you're welcome. But I I did not mind her in the same way. I don't like her. I reading the physical book. When I read the physical uh, book, I did not have as big of an issue with her. But listening to a voice... Oh, Tim Robbins made her unbearable to listen to. Like, oh, okay. Terrible. Listeners out there, when I, I, I listened to the audiobook that was written by the written that was read by a uh, famous actor and life partner of Susan Sarandon, uh, Tim Robbins. And holy Lord, the voice he gave Mildred was just nails on a chalkboard, which went with her personality. Which one I listened to. I don't know who the narrator was, but they did a very good job of making her seem like someone who did not need to be. Nope, it was Tim Robbins. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I don't know who I listened to because this is the first time I've read the physical book. Because the mm -hmm. first time I ever listened to Fahrenheit 451, it was an audiobook. But I had gotten it from the library, like on CD. So, I don't know yeah. if it was Tim Robbins or if it was someone else. 
but I enjoyed it so much listening to it because I thought it was a very well narrated book. Oh, no, he did a great job. But the problem is, is that the character of Mildred is willfully ignorant. And as a result, for someone who is not willfully ignorant, or at least mildly ignorant, like you, it, it grates on your nerves because you're like, woman, are you not seeing what's happening? And the way he characterized her, she was, it, he had her very nasal and mm. whiny. Yeah. She's not talking like this. Why can't we have a fourth screen for the living room? And it's just like, go set yourself on fire, you know? Ironic. I, but <laughs> some of the puns are intentional. Some of them aren't. It's a burden I bear. I can't help it. Yeah. I think that, like, I don't know. I liked her as, I well, also, Ray Bradbury is not subtle. I think we can get that no. out of the way right now. This is not a subtle book. No. In general. Um, if you haven't read Fahrenheit 451, I don't think we're really going to avoid spoilers, but there's really not spoilers. Like, that summary is basically what the book's about. This book is just about questioning that. <laughs> like, if, if, you, if you haven't read Fahrenheit 451 and you are above the age of 16, which I believe most of our listeners are... Um, You've probably heard enough about this book just from whatever yeah. English lit classes you had in high school that you know how this book goes. There's there's yeah. not – it'd be like talking about The Birds, the, the short story The Birds that Alfred Hitchcock made into a movie. Yeah. Uh, you know enough, enough about it. I have no idea what The Birds is about except that there's a lot of birds. <laughs> I know a lot of factoids about The Birds, but that's – I know it. someone who knows a lot of facts about birds. I mean, that's <laughs> fair. That's different. <laughs> anyway, it's unrelated. But I, so I'm not going to like avoid saying anything. Nothing in here is spoilery as far as this book goes. I don't think you can. Oh, spoil I, everything it. I, I'm, I am turning off my spoil, my spoiler filter. So listeners out there, if you intend on reading it and don't want to be spoiled, I would say. I, I, again, I think you could listen anyway. I don't think this is a mm. book that is spoiled because the message is what is being said. It's not like the narrative the narrative the narrative is not important in fahrenheit 451 it's just his very that, not subtle message ray bradbury seemed to think so he did not think the narrative was important no that's what i was saying he didn't seem to think it was very important because i did not enjoy this book well that's different saying that the narrative is important doesn't mean it's unenjoyable he didn't yeah. think the narrative was important because it was about the idea which is the idea of his book is that mm -hmm. the books are about the ideas that they hold. <laughs> and boy, do you know about it because the whole book preaches it like a sermon. Yes, you do. At, this, at the same time, it's it's interesting because I had, I had read this book before. This was something that I had been required to read in high school. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because I'm reading it now as an adult and I'm going, you know, I wonder if this is why people of an older generation always told me that, you know, they're not always going to be books. They're all, they're going to do away with the books. Like I can be reminded. I'm remembering words in a sentence. I distinctly remember having a conversation with my grandmother. Um, I have a hard time with memorization and she was encouraging me to memorize scripture. And she goes, we won't always have, the Bible. We won't even always have books. And I'm going, okay, that that's a fair statement, but I'm wondering if that initial fear 
was implanted by this book. I think, oh, I think it was in general, like not just this book, because that was definitely a theme of the time. And there's, I I wish I'd like randomly gotten the book Amusing Ourselves to Death, which would be really interesting to read right after reading this book, I think, Um, which was written, I want to say 70s. Let me look real quick. There was something going on in the 60s and the 70s that like that whole drug usage, lots of drug usage, but that whole like 85 people, people from that era have this mentality that you need to be prepared because they're going to come take your stuff away. Anyway. Uh, a lot, a lot of that Celeste, I think was stemming from the whole hippie counterculture versus the government. Mm. Um, they didn't trust the government. The government didn't trust them. Um, well, Nixon, I mean, if you, if you consider also like in the time period, not necessarily taking the books away, but this book was published and then was banned. And there true. was this like very strict hold over information that could be passed, especially like after Nazi regime, where it's like, we mm. want to make sure we have the right ideas being taught to our children, which in turn is kind of controlling the information you're giving your children, which is like the exact same thing, just in the opposite end. But that idea of like, they're going to control the information and they do control, and by they, I mean, you know, whoever is in charge of what is publicly broadcast yeah. controls what's seen, which is what I get more from this book in general. It, I don't know, it just is interesting. And just to throw this out there, my grandmother is the farthest thing from an old hippie. (laughs) Um, So even if it's seeped into general culture, she was not getting it because she was not a hippie. Mm -hmm. She feels guilty about the one time that she had a screwdriver and enjoyed it because it had vodka in it. Like, she's like the tool. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) (laughs) she's very very uh not proper but conservative that's the word yeah that's well i think there's just it's really fascinating to me when you look at different points of history and how those major Mm -hmm. events like great depression yeah world war ii things like that really shaped how culture reacted to different things funny enough like art because yeah. art is always a sign not only of social change, but where society is changing. Mm-hmm. Art is both catching up and at the forefront at the same time, which falls into the idea of books, too, where they are what are leading the next ideas that are being put out there, but they are also giving you insight to the ideas that have been there. Yeah. Um, but to go back to this book that I think would be very interesting to read following this is Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. Um, which came out in 85. Um, and his was uh, public discourse in the age of show business. Mm. And kind of the little uh, blurb from it says, what happens when media and politics become forms of entertainment? As our world begins to look more and more like Orwell's 1984, Neil Postman's essential guide to modern media is more relevant than ever. And that was, you know, in 85. Television, radio are catching up but we don't have the internet and stuff yet but it's still yeah. you'll read things in there that you're like oh and same with this uh, did you guys have an intro by uh neil gaiman no, no maybe I don't, so. I don't know i don't remember um ironically it was one of my favorite parts of the book and i like the book so <laughs> um i'm gonna I don't find have access to because it went back to the library, so I don't have access to find out if that is there indeed. 
I might, I mean, I might still have the audiobook on uh, Hoopla, but I don't care enough to look. <laughs> I don't want to go back to it. I do love Neil Gaiman, though. Like my my experience with him is limited strictly to Norse mythology. So, I'm actually because of the alleged, not the alleged read. I mean, sort of all of these are alleged reads, but because of the Enchanted Hour, Dallas and I have taken to at least a few times a week uh, reading out loud together, and we've been going through Coraline because mm. we loved that movie, mm -hmm. um, and it has an interesting story as to how it was published. So, and it's nice and short, and it's kind of spooky. So it's spooky season right now. But he has a way of writing that it brings about points and things that he thinks without coming across as preachy. Like, other mother in Coraline is completely psychotic. And Dallas and I are, like, yelling at the book, going, what are you doing? Like, I had to legitimately stop in the middle of a paragraph the other day because I was like, she did not just say this. But she did. So the story, though, of how it got published is interesting because Neil, Neil Gaiman, Gaiman, I think he says a Gaiman, is um, generally writes things that are a little more spooky, a little bleak. Um, and he had written Coraline, sent it to a publisher, and the publisher goes, I don't know, this doesn't feel like a kid's book. Like, I feel like this is a little too intense. So she took it home with her. And read it to her daughter to see if it was too scary. And she read all the way through. Her daughter loved it. And they got it published. And it became what it is. Became a movie. All that fun mm -hmm. stuff. Come to find out years later, her daughter goes, oh no, I was absolutely terrified of everything in that I book. remember you telling us this. But it. The story was so good. I wanted to know what was happening. I, th I think, I think for me, I stayed away from Neil Gaiman for a very long time mm -hmm. uh, because I would constantly confuse him with Alan Moore. That's fair. And Is he? Did he write Night Circus? Neil Gaiman? No. Or was that someone else? Somebody else wrote that. Hmm. That one is. Ooh, who wrote Night Circus? Because that's one of my friend's favorite books, and I always link it up with Neil Gaiman. It definitely has a similar and feel. Aaron Morgenstern. But with Alan Moore, though, and I kept confusing him with Alan Moore, he actually practices witchcraft while he's writing. And oh. that surprised me. I'm like, I don't want to read those books. I wouldn't be surprised if Neil Gaiman did. Uh, Would not shock me. <laughs> well, him, Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman are uh, friends. So yeah. maybe, like but he never owns it. So. Gaiman to believe in something and he's pretty anti -everything. yeah I was gonna say I I wouldn't be surprised if he practiced that but I would be perhaps more surprised just that he believed in something <laughs> in something in yeah. anything like I would I, not like, incredibly uh, agnostic and or nihilistic I don't know it's kind of um but I'm gonna read a portion of this intro because I thought it was really good do it um so the first part he just talks about like what speculative fiction is, which is what 1984 is, or 1984. Well, 1984 is also speculative fiction. Fahrenheit 451 
Um, and he said, there are three phrases that make possible the world of writing about the world of not yet. You can call it science fiction or speculative fiction. You can call it anything you wish. And they are simple phrases. What if, if only, if this goes on. What if gives us change, a departure from our lives? What if aliens landed tomorrow and gave us everything we wanted, but at a price? If only lets us explore the glories and dangers of tomorrow. If only dogs could talk, if only I were invisible. If this goes on is the most predictive of the three, although it doesn't try to predict an actual future with all its messy confusion. Instead, if this goes on, fiction makes an element of life today, something clear and obvious and normally something troubling, and asks what happened if that thing, that one thing, became bigger, became all-pervasive, changed the way we thought and behaved. If this goes on, all communication everywhere will be through text messages or computers, and direct speech between two people without a machine will be outlawed. Um, so he does, I mean, he points out that it's a cautionary tale and lets us explore cautionary worlds, and goes on to say that it is a story that he was writing in his present, which was 1950s. So you have to first take into perspective that think about the past, and he was writing about the future of that past which was not him writing about the future. It was just taking that point and being like, well, what would happen if, um, and he says what I think is very important, which is if someone tells you what a story about, they're probably right. But if someone tells you what a story is all about, they are definitely very wrong. And then he just highlights like the past of where variety shows and lowbrow comedy was coming onto TV and soap operas. And that was kind of like taking them by storm. And was becoming a thing. And so, you know, Ray Bradbury seeing this in his life was like, well, if this continues in the way that I'm currently seeing it continue, what is the furthest possible conclusion? What would that be? And that's, you know, what he came up with. (laughs) And highlights, you know, the importance of story and caring for things and love of people, love of books, so on and so forth. Um, And his very last note in the introduction, which is my favorite, is as a final note, in these days when we worry and we argue about whether ebooks are real books, I love how broad Ray Bradbury's definition of a book is at the end, when he points out that we should not judge our books by their covers, and that some books exist between covers that are perfectly people-shaped. Which I think is great, because if you read this under that lens, you're not like, technology is bad. Yeah. It's that going away from stories and ideas is bad. Which is what I take away from this book. <laughs> That's kind of what I take away from it as well. Because, again, I enjoy the general... I know John didn't, but I enjoy yeah. the general storyline of Fahrenheit 451. Mm-hmm. I just didn't care for the wife's voice. Um, it was, And I think it she's was a tool. Yeah, she's a tool. Like, I do too. <laughs> she's not like a tool like that, but... Uh, it's, the, I mean, it's kind of like... like okay. I think you made this reference of being like Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, it's very cut and dry, not subtle, allegorical. She is the picture of the current society. She was choosing not to educate themselves. Right. So she she's not meant to be likable. So yeah. She was put there so you understood what the mass world was like yeah. without having to meet the mass world. Right. Because there's, I mean, there's only like five characters you learn. Well, there's six characters I think you learn the names of that are important, quote unquote. Uh, the people at the end, I'm not counting them just because they're, you don't really, like, you know their names for like three pages. So, but you have Guy who is, uh, insert of the reader, questioning his wife, who is a vision of the world, accepting where they are, uh, the police chief, what's his name? 
fireman chief. Sorry. Yeah. I know who you're talking about, but I can't think We're of his not name. Think of it. And his is like actively using the ideas against it mm-hmm. to like support the view of what the wife holds. And then the professor, which is kind of like helping guide. Is that only five? Yeah, that's five people. Oh, and Clarice. Pardon. Yeah. Who plants the ideas. Hello, Clarice. Hello, Clarice. I was thinking that as well. When, yes. Every time I read that, because I also read Silence of the Lambs around the time I first read this. So, <laughs> Much different, Clarice. Oh, yes. But, yeah. I definitely just, I don't take Fahrenheit 451 as a story yeah. narratively. I think it's not a narrative book. I will say that the movie with Michael B. Jordan that came out a few years ago was very good. It very much updated the things and kind of made things a little clearer. Because Ray Bremer is not clear enough about what he means. (laughs) I mean, he's clear about what he means, but some of the descriptions are left to your imagination. Um. So, which is why I think it's interesting, because every time I've read this, I've imagined it a little differently. Which I think is kind of the point, too. Yeah, it probably is. But um, they were talking about, like, the the little things in the ears. And I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm listening to this using wireless headphones. It's ear pods. Uh, Oh, okay. He's literally talking about ear pods. Cool. I'm going to get some earpods that are seashell-shaped. Right? Well, I mean, their seashells are in a lot of different shapes. Like, if you just uh, think about, um, like, uh, the ones you use when you're shoe. When you're a shoe? <laughs> no. Don't be silly. Uh, I'm thinking, like, the Secret Circuit, like, Secret Service earpiece inserts. Oh, yeah, yeah. That they are circular and they have a swirl that I would, if I had not known what that technology was, would be like, that's kind of seashellish. Sure. Mm-hmm. It's talking to you. <laughs> yeah. That's great. But I had another point I was going to make now and I forget. All right, John, give us some, some uh, negative views of this book. This book falls afoul of the same crime that I ascribe to a plethora of Christian cinema and fiction, which is it starts with a message it wants to tell. And it wraps the story around a message rather than starting with a story and letting the message develop organically. That's fair. And that drives me up the wall. It's, it's basically a sermon set to a story rather than a message within a story. And I think it is, I think it is wrong to go into this book with the idea that it is a story. I go into every thing that has narrative as a story because that's what it's being presented as. Oh, I should um, I should rephrase. It is a story. This is a mm-hmm. story for sure. This is a story with a very strong message. It is definitely I, have elements of a preaching message. I I would reverse that and say this is a message with a very weak story. Still makes it a story. Doesn't have to be a strong I, story I, to I, be a story. I, I I understand that, but but what I'm saying is it has this, a very weak narrative. Yes, and I. It sacrifices the art for the message, and that's what drives See, me that's, nuts. That's what I disagree with, though, because but I also read a lot of books that are like heavily literary fiction that mm-hmm. don't have strong narratives, and you're just kind of reading 
the story to get the message of it as opposed to a, a book that I'm, I guess I am actually reading one right now. <laughs> I'm reading Throne of Glass. Uh, you're there for the story. That one's not, that one's not giving me meaning of life. You know, it's not trying Mm -hmm. to make comment. It's not trying to paint a worldview. There will be worldview in it because it's written by a person who has one, (laughs) but it's not trying to give it to me in the same way that this book wants to give me his opinion. Mm -hmm. And that is the purpose. And he fulfilled that. So his story did what it wanted to do. On a, on a narrative level, I would equivocate this book with saving christmas the movie with kurt cameron i have not seen it is that the uh, christmas shoes one no is, isn't he in fun. that oh no that's Stephen curtis Chapman or michael uh, w smith it's one of those and, two white guys <laughs> and I, I say that not to be derivative to either but to illustrate the point i was making that it, it, it the story feels like an afterthought and i guess whether enjoyment comes from it really kind of just comes down to what are you coming what do you come to the books for Mm. Me, I come to, I come to any kind of a narrative very specifically as a form of escapism. I, you know, take me to a different world. Let me be somebody else for an hour or seven, you know, um, same, same way I do with video games. It's just like, I, I want to be somebody else for a minute. Let me, let me live life through your eyes. And then I'm just sitting here and I'm getting hammered with, this preachiness much in the same way that I, I, the first pilgrim's progress was like, if you read the narrative of pilgrim's progress, that also was very much a sermon that had a slight narrative wrapped around it. The second pilgrim's progress, a much better book, by the way, mm. there's a sequel. It's about pilgrim's wife. And I recommend anybody, everybody read that. Cause it is very good. Um, but yeah, I, it just, it, I, I felt like I, it felt like a bait and switch to me because I've always mm. been told how this is such a fantastic book and I'm reading it and I'm like, I, I, I would have enjoyed it more if it was just an essay and I read it as an essay rather than. I don't to think it, it would have had the same impact as an essay. On society as a whole, you're probably correct. I think it would have had a better impact on me as an individual. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. Because otherwise, I mean, Who it cares about society. I, I feel and, like everything you're saying promotes the message of nineteen or of 1984. I'm going to do this <laughs> the rest of the time of Fahrenheit 451. Because it's the idea of like, and not to say that it is wrong to go to a book to escape and to enjoy mm-hmm. a story. But one of the messages that this paints is that the ideas within a story are also very important. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. But I, I, I think that the moment you make the art secondary you you devalue what you're creating to a certain extent it depends on what you think art is because that's just Mm -hmm. one kind of art you are just degrading the narrative art but it's still a story and i think the story still has strong art in it Mm. i I mean at that point i think we're really debating personal preference Mm -hmm. um but I, 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 you know, there have been other books I think that can, that have made very strong, conveyed very strong ideas, but did so in such a way where the narrative didn't feel secondary to what they were trying to say. And, and I think, I think if Ray Bradbury had spent a little bit more time fleshing out the narrative, 
I would have enjoyed this book a lot more and it, even, even keeping his, but I mean, there, a lot of, a lot of the story really felt rushed to get to the next point. And I think that's, that's really what I'm trying to say is he, he felt like in a hurry to make a point rather than to let the story develop. Mm-hmm. Cause like this book, I, I can't say how many pages it was. Cause I like, again, read it and I got it through audiobook, Um, and it was about five and a half hours in an audio. So 158. I feel like this book could have been a lot better if he would have doubled the size of the book and fleshed it out a little bit more. It, it just, that's the word I'm looking for. It felt, the story felt shallow to me. Much like Mildred. <laughs> Which I, yeah, like, I think it's, maybe I enjoy that because I look at it as a whole and everything that was trying to be accomplished with it, well, maybe not everything, but one of the things trying to be accomplished is not just making a good story, but even just looking at the medium, you can be like, well, that mm-hmm. is shallow. Well, who would have sat through longer for a book to read it? If this is I, the I, world that he's imagining, who's going to pick up a book to read all of that to get to the idea? If I don't right. put the idea first. Right. But I, th- I think he could have expanded on the story a lot more and kept the idea and, and made, made the plot deeper. Like, I mean, it it would have been like, if you take a book, like I know why the cage bird sings or, uh, to kill a mockingbird, which has, a, ha, both of books have very strong messaging within them, mm-hmm. but the writer took the time to add depth to the narrative to better hook the reader. I, I feel like I would say I, I, w- I don't know that I put To Kill a Mockingbird on that list. And that's one of my favorite books that is in my top five. Really? I think if you read that right now, it feels just as heavy handed without the hmm. story being a center or strong point of it. Because the, the you- story in To Kill a Mockingbird is just there to tell you the idea. Have it might you- be stronger than well, go ahead. Having read To Kill a Mockingbird recently having read it for the first time recently, like within the last 10 years, um, it definitely is pretty heavy handed, but it's also being told through the eyes of a child. So it's a little more engaging because you are seeing these things through a child and you're being led through the story. Um, because it's, it's like, it's not, so an adult who already has a worldview. It's somebody who mm-hmm. is establishing their worldview. Which is kind of, if you look at, if you look at this one through the lens of what you just said, Celeste, mm-hmm. it is Guy who already has a view mm-hmm. who doesn't value story yeah. because he doesn't know what story is. So if you are self-insert Guy, which I kind of think is what you should be doing in this book is, I'm in the perspective of Guy. If I were living in this world, how would I view it? The idea is something you've never heard of and is the only thing that actually holds value because it's something that makes you think. Whereas a story is just, he's tired of stories. Stories don't mean anything. Stories are family on the TV. And he already doesn't like that. Yeah. But I think, I think, and I love To Kill a Mockingbird, but I think putting that as saying that it has a very strong story would would be inaccurate if that is the definition that we're going off. Of I think story. it has a stronger story than... Fahrenheit I think it. I think it has a stronger story than Fahrenheit four five one. That I will agree with. 
I don't think it has a strong story. <laughs> All right. Let me let me let me bring it around again and substitute that out for the screw tape letters. I've, I've never read, read that one yet. It's on my to be read shelf. Because that it's on my shelf. Because <laughs> that it. book that book is very heavy handed with its messaging, but the narrative is the narrative justifies it, if that makes sense. Like I I, I don't but it's, I mean, it's, and this is me coming from someone who hasn't read it. It's just letters, right? They're the back and forth letters. Is there a narrative yeah, part to it? There is a narrative. I mean, uh, not is there a story in it, but is there narrative pieces? Long form prose. It's more like Dracula where it's all written. I've also never read Dracula. <laughs> oh, man. You are missing out, Squid. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. It's letters. It's all letters, yeah. but it's it, it's conveying a larger story. Yes. I think I probably also wouldn't put screw tape letters in the same thing just because it's also explored through a different medium. I know he collects it into a book, but telling a story through letters is also a different medium than telling a story through narrative prose. All right. I didn't like the book. That's that's where I'm leaving it. It felt preachy. I felt like if he would have spent more time developing the narrative into something deeper, he could have had a greater impact on more people with the message he was trying to convey and had a fantastic story at the same time. You know time. what you should read then, John? That has, What's that? dare I say, too much story? Les Miserables. <laughs> I actually did so that play good. in high school. Honestly? One of the best books I've listened to. I listened to the audiobook. Very good. Listening to the audiobook will probably make me go back and read it uh, in a physical copy at some point. I don't think I would have if I hadn't listened to the audiobook, but there's too much story in it. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> I know a Another lot about the sewer systems <laughs> of Paris. <laughs> Another another very heavy-handed story with a very great narrative, The Crucible by Arthur Miller. Also haven't read that. <sighs> I'm uh, done. Brother Skirmizov. <laughs> Brother Skirmizov has a pretty strong message. I tried to read that, but I couldn't keep up with the names in that book. Those names were out of control. War and Peace, too, actually. War and Peace is also pretty good. Most Russian lit has pretty strong message in it, and it's usually like, we all die, be sad. Um <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Russia. Welcome to Russia, where all we have is nihilism and vodka. <laughs> That's, That's why I love those books. <laughs> anyway, if you want to read Fahrenheit 451, I suggest you do it. I just suggest you go into it not expecting escapism narrative and do it more knowing that you're getting a heavy-handed story I would about agree. this idea. <laughs> I would agree. And, and that's not to say that the entire story is bad. Once it felt like a big lead up to about like listening to it in audiobook, it felt like a big lead up to about a 45 minute section that was incredibly entertaining for me. Yeah. And then it died down again. Uh, but that 45, that 45 minute section was fantastic. Yeah. So I think that if squid and I had realized you had never read this, we could have prepped you a little better. Mm. but I legitimately thought it was required reading. Not for me, but I will also say that I, I, my expectations weren't set for going into this book. I walked into it expecting one thing, you know, it, it's sort of like when you're grab a glass without 
looking at it and you take a drink of it expecting Coke and you get a glass of milk. Oh, yeah. No, that's different. I was going to say water and then vodka, but I was still in my Russian lit. I was going to say <laughs> Coke and then chew. So. Oh. 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 See, no. Cause I, that's I'm, also I'm, I'm, a strong I'm, message. <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to intimate that this is a bad book by any means. I'm trying to say that I did not enjoy this book. The re- yeah. going into going through it was not an enjoyable process for me. I believe that the messaging of it is incredibly valid and I felt like he spent more time fleshing out his message than he did his narrative and that's a pet peeve for me. Um because it, I it, there's a lot of it's a pet peeve for me specifically within Christian media because there's a lot of Christian media that makes really crappy art with a really strong message and then it accomplishes nothing because the art in and of itself was poor. Yeah. I, I do wish part three of this book was longer. I forgot that it was as short as it was. Mm -hmm. And also my book is like the 60th anniversary. So the last 200 pages is just like essays and like history of the time that he was writing in and just like different facts and details about it. Which are also very fascinating. I do think they were very good. Especially if you like reading essays about things. Um, but I, I will- thought I had 100 pages left. And I was like, oh, that was the last page? Wait. <laughs> well, hold on. What? I will also say that I think a big part of my disdain for this book came from Mildred as a character. I could not stand any of the scenes she was in. And she was in a lot more of them than you guys kept telling me about. That's because I thought uh, I had 100 pages left. And I was like, she's gone. <laughs> I have 150 pages left and she's not in this book anymore. For me, it's because I blocked her out. I was like, and oh, so, it's Mildred. Okay. Yeah. And, and so I couldn't... I found her to be entirely unbearable as a character. And so that may, that probably played a heavy hand into my dissatisfaction with the narrative. Me with every male interest in YA novels. <laughs> <laughs> anyway go read throne of glass it's been really good so far <laughs> anyway i think we kind of covered the book and kind of some of the spiritual aspects of it too unless anyone has something they want to throw out there we've kind of just been really loosey-goosey with that and i'm okay with it i mean the spiritual aspects of it are coming out in the general conversation so yeah um uh, if you read this book and you have a Christian worldview, you'll probably pick things out of it because it's yeah. not subtle. <laughs> Which is not to say that he has a Christian worldview in this book because I don't, I don't get that from this. Um, but it's very easy to look at the worldview that is in it and extrapolate points <laughs> because he just hands it to you. So, um, but go read it. I do think it is a book that's worth reading. Just don't go into it expecting like a really strong story narrative. Yeah, And see what you can get out of it. Like Neil Gaiman said, it's kind of just, if you say what a story is about, you're right. But if you say all the stories about, you're probably wrong. So go see what you think the story is about. And then continue to tell stories to other people. Stories are good. Yay, fiction. Yay, books. (laughs) Anyway, that's it. Unless anyone has anything else to add. So long and thanks for all the fish. Okay, bye. 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 We Read Allegedly is part of the Devoted Geeks Network, devoted to letting you know that you're loved. If you liked what you heard, please like, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
and catch us every first Friday of the month with a new episode. Next month, we'll be reading Inkheart by Cornelia Funk. See you then. Eh. Just go eh.